Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, July the 1st, 2021. This is episode 2904 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Thursday, it's time for the Expert Council Q&A show. Here's who I've got for you today. The issues of having lectins in your diet from Dr. Ken Berry, and I, I think this is a, a really important subject. Tim Toolman Cook weighs in with thoughts on Home Advisor as a marketing tool. I'll have some addition on that one, more of what to do after you have the sale, just from my old world of uh, sales and marketing and customer service management. I'll bring some stuff to you from that. Sean Mills is going to talk about backup power between the time your power goes out <clears throat> and your generator kicks on. Uh, you know, this is in the case of having kind of a generator that uh, turns itself on, but there's like a 15 seconds where the whole house is dark. Maybe computers go get wiped out of work or all kinds of things can happen that you'd prefer not to happen. Uh, I think this will be useful, too, for people who have regular old generators like I do that you pull out and fire up. Having some sort of uh, automated battery backup that at least keeps the room lit up. And i got some thoughts on it. Real simple, by the way. Um, <clears throat> next up, Chef Keith heard our discussions on grass-fed beef a few weeks ago and sent us a recipe for what he says are some of the best burgers ever. Steakhouse butter burgers. You can learn all about that from Chef Keith Snow today. Amy Dingman will talk about keeping your children safe on the Internet, um, balancing giving them the amazing power of the Internet for research with them not going and doing and seeing things they shouldn't be. I have some thoughts on that, too. Nick Ferguson will talk about overwintering potted trees uh, for selling in the future. And I have a little addition to this one as well, a real quick one, that I think you got to be careful. Something Nick advised would probably work, but it might create, and I know it has for some created, another problem. You could lose them all, even though it's not the cold that will kill them. And then I have a quote of the day for you today. It's about the value of experience versus the value of a paycheck itself. Uh, it's by Harold S. Ganin. And he said this, in the business world, everyone is paid in two coins, cash and experience. Take the experience first. The cash will come later. Uh, I'm going to talk about that. I'll link it back to something that comes right out of the Rich Dad book series. And I'll talk to you about how this has impacted me and my own life and how many people, especially those of you all that are young, we need to combine this mindset with something I've been talking about a bit this week, patience. Patience, do the work, and cash in down the road, but also be aggressive and get it done as quickly as possible. And knowing when you've been paid enough in experience that there's no reason for you to stay put any longer. We'll talk about that when I get to my anchor segment. Before we do, I just want to remind you guys, hey, look, if you like this show and the work that I do, and you're not an MSB member, you should be. And, and here's why. It's not a guilt trip or anything. You, you're free to listen forever for free if you want to. This is my pitch toward joining MSB. You listen to the show even once or twice a week, you must like it. Number two, you probably buy stuff like seeds or tactical gear or cookware or just about anything you can think of that would fit in this space. 
So you join, you sign up, you pay 50 bucks a year. Then you use the discounts that I have for you as a member, and you get more than your money back. It's win, win, and win. I win because I get to keep doing what I love. You win because you get to sh uh, support the show you love, and you make a profit over the year. And the vendors that provide the discounts win because they get something really important in the world of business. We call that incremental revenue. So do consider becoming a member today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members or go to the survivalpodcast.com and put forward slash members. Either way, you'll get there and you can sign up. And I do take cryptocurrency and I take cash, check, money order, all that crap by mail too. Uh, I'll even take silver, though nobody pays with it anymore, or you can pay online with a credit card. It's all up to you. So with that, let's dig into uh, our topic today, or I should say our, our lineup today. Dr. Ken Berry leading off with what the problems can be associated with lectins, which come from certain plants in your diet. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry. I'm answering a question today from Michael. Michael saw a YouTube video by Dr. Gundry, who is a plant-based doctor. He wrote a recent book called The Plant Paradox, which is a pretty darn good book. And Dr. Gundry said that lectins found in vegetables and fruits are the cause of a great deal of harm to the gut. And I agree with this. He said to avoid rice, tomatoes, wheat, bell pepper, beans, and eggplant. I also agree with this. Some of what he said seems to align with what I've heard Jack and Doc say about nutrition in general. Is it possible this guy actually found the why? Uh, I think that lectins and phytates and other phytochemicals in plants are the why uh, behind the cause of many of the chronic diseases that people suffer from, especially gut syndromes such as IBS, Crohn's, um, ulcerative colitis, that sort of thing. People with those conditions tend to do very, very well on a meat-only carnivore diet thus avoiding all the lectins and oxalates and phytates and xenoestrogens that are found in many, many plant foods. I'm not saying everyone should do that, but the problem with Dr. Gundry is he's a plant-based doctor. And although I agree almost completely with the first half of his book that you should avoid all these plant toxins, then he goes on in the second half of the book to tell you that you can heal your body somehow, and then ma magically reintroduce these toxins, and it'll be okay, which doesn't make any sense. If, if, the, if lectins are toxins, then they're toxins, and you shouldn't ever eat them, or at least eat them only occasionally, like we would have a, a glass of fine whiskey, which we all know is a toxin, but we still like it occasionally anyway. So I agree with the first part of Dr. Gundry's book, but the second part uh, kind of gets off into the foolish woo-woo of, Somehow, even though plants are bad for us, they're still good for us. I hope this helps. Thanks for the question, Michael. See you guys next time. So my one little additional thought on this one is I think we need to understand that plants use chemical weapons to defend themselves. right? And le lectins are one form of chemical weaponry that plants use to defend themselves. A plant, now I'm not talking about this plant having a brain that we think of like for a higher organism, like a human or even a mouse. But plants don't want to be eaten unless there's a reason for a particular part of them to be eaten where they can then propagate. So if you think about something like a green like lettuce, it doesn't really benefit when you eat it in any way. Okay, 
Now, he mentioned plants like peppers and eggplants having lectins in them, and I, I eat those, and I tolerate them just fine, and as long as I'm not eating so many that I'm getting too many carbs, I don't worry about it. They may be Some people may be more sensitive to this chemical weaponry, but I would assert that both peppers and eggplants can be, not always are, but can be eaten raw, and a pepper or an eggplant eaten raw does benefit because when you take a dump somewhere in the woods when we're talking about you know the way humans evolved they tend to propagate themselves and i think that probably the animals that will best tolerate anything is the animal species and types that can propagate a plant by consuming part of it because otherwise what benefit is there to the plant to be eaten and i know that seems maybe too perfect of a fit, but I think that if you really look at the majesty that is life on this planet, it is a perfect fit. And so if you look at something like a potato, it does not benefit from being eaten. If you look at something like a bean, a human eating it does not benefit. It will not come out and propagate itself somewhere else. It just doesn't. And I don't think that means you can eat a whole bunch of berries because berries get propagated that way, but they probably have less. What you're talking about here is what you would call an anti-nutrient, something that basically is a negative nutritional impact on a human being that consumes it. And that doesn't mean we need to get hyper-vigilant with this and never eat anything except meat, even though some of us do, like Ken does. Ken's pretty much pretty much 100% carnivore. Uh, occasionally eat some cilantro and onions with his steak. That's about it. Um uh, But I do think we need to be aware of this. We just being aware of the fact that plants aren't necessarily your friends and they don't benefit from being consumed and they've developed this biochemical means of defense. This is why many plants are bitter even if they're edible or this is why many plants actually will make you sick if you eat them. In fact, if you think about it, the vast majority of plants, if you eat them, will either make you sick or kill you. And that, that's something really to think about when you hear all of this plant-based diet crap, that maybe it's not the natural human diet. I'm just saying, um, when something is specifically evolved to harm you if you consume it, maybe it's not something you should be consuming, at least at the level that some people seem to believe. Uh, next, uh, next up, we have a question for Tim Toolman Cook on using home advisor not as a consumer but as a marketing tool for people that are handymen or uh, contractors or things like that hey guys toolman tim here coming to you from the workshop at toolmantim.co where we build business create community find freedom and share success back again to answer another question for the expert council so let's dive right in this week's question comes from eric and he asks I've started the handyman business and I'm considering using HomeAdvisor. The marketing agent is super overzealous and way pushier than I'd like. I've halted him as I know his gig, but business isn't taking off. My whole community runs off a he knows this guy, she had a brother who does this type of system. Point is, he keeps sending me good leads for free, but wants me to sign up before I can contact these folks. I know I'm going to pay for the leads, but I'm just wondering if any experts would recommend this service. Thank you. So first off, Eric, let me say congrats on taking that leap toward independence and financial freedom. You're going to knock it out of the park. And it takes time to build something great when you start. So just hang in there long enough for it to grow and it's going to happen for you. So I haven't used HomeAdvisor myself, 
but I did a bunch of research to help answer this question for you. The first place I turned is a really good group. It's a handyman group I belong to called the Handyman Mastermind Group on Facebook. So if you're not on there, check that out. A lot of good people to pick the brains of. Doing a quick search for Home Advisor does not bring back many positive results. There's six or seven posts just from this year alone, with nearly 100% of the comments similar to some of these. Stuff like, that's a big no to Home Advisor, or no, stay away, once they have your contact info, they'll never leave you alone. Or next, don't even waste your time or money, I spent over 600 bucks for advertising and got nothing at all. Nope, bad idea, they'll take your money and only take your money. Or wish they would stop calling me. Or it's a scam. I had to file a fraud case against them. Unfortunately, they even have a clash action lawsuit in the works against them due to fake job leads that they charge contractors for. North of the border, it isn't much better. They purchased a company in Canada called Homestars in 2017, and looking on the reviews in the last 12 months, only 28% of them have been positive. And it appears that since HomeAdvisor has taken them over, they've started using their usual and I use this term lightly, customer service tactics north of the border as well. So basically, the majority opinion is they're incredibly pushy to the point of harassment, you need to pay for leads which rarely ever pan out, and they tend to overpromise and underdeliver to the point of possible deception. So that's a hard no on Home Advisor. But what are some solutions, better options, that could make you some more money? So there's other apps and services that, even though they may still have their faults, they're more highly recommended than HomeAdvisor. Thumbtack, Porch, and Home Depot Pro Platform seem to get fellow handymen better leads with a whole lot less investment. Nextdoor is a great way to get your name and business in front of people that will actually hire you and live in your area. Make sure you set up a good website, a strong social media presence with before and after photos of the work you've got done. Google My Business is worth getting done properly. And a strong dose of patience helps as well. Small towns can be hard to crack. There's no easy way to do it. Maybe getting involved in a community board or two might help. Also, not ideal, but even taking a part-time job at a hardware store, building supply, big box store to make some contacts for a short and definite period of time can help too. As well, Facebook ads really do help. The whole pay-to-play model I'm not a huge fan of, but the fact that it's worked and it's worked for me in the past helps. Early on is the hardest, when you're just getting a foot in the door, is when you'll probably be the most discouraged, and sticking with it in the long term is what's going to separate being successful from giving up too soon. Keep doing what you're doing, think outside the box, and use this extra free time you have right now when you aren't working for clients to learn new skills and test new types of advertising, trying anything and everything you can to get your name out there. You will do this. Okay, that's it for me this week, guys. If you haven't, take a minute and go by toolmantim.co and follow my social media links there. And stop by the YouTube channel every Sunday evening at 9 p.m. Central Time for my brand new weekly live stream called Talking Tools, where I share my one year later reviews on tools, Q&A collaboration sessions with fellow content creators, and most importantly, time to chat as a community and interact with one another. So as always, everyone, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I just I just want to come at this one just for a moment from a marketing and business operations standpoint. Um, whether or not Home Advisor is going to produce leads that will convert to sales for you is something you will only know if you give them a shot. And uh, contracts and things like that, I don't like with things like that. They need to be short term so you can judge the value of what 
you're being provided with. And the problem is that most people that go and use a service like this never get the full benefit of it because they view it very much as a one-off. So I get a lead for Bill. Bill says he needs a shed built. I go build a, a shed for Bill, and I continue to rely on Home Advisor for, to send me more bills. Right, And they'll send me bills in the form of leads and bills in the form of a thing I have to pay for. And so I might get a lead that's profitable because it converts to a sale. I might get a lead that's not profitable because it doesn't convert to sale. And I might get a lead that's not profitable because it converts to a sale. It's too low dollar of a sale to be worth what I'm paying for the lead. You see how all three of those are potential outcomes. Or it might be break even. As long as I get enough to convert, I can win the game if I play long. The big mistake people with businesses like this have is they've generally, it's their first business, they've never been in a business, and they don't build a process into their business. Here's an example of a process. I will get people, I want to be on your show. Great, fill out the guest form. Well, I, I mean, I, I, you can ask me anything you want. Uh, get, great, give me some setup questions and fill out the guest form. Well, I'm really important, and I don't really fill out guest forms. Okay, then you're not getting on the show. This is not an ego-driven thing. This is a process that keeps our business on track and makes sure that we don't generally screw up and book people for the wrong day or get confused or not have everything work or I'm doing one thing and Dorothy's doing another. I approve guests. Dorothy books them. Dorothy confirms them. Dorothy sends them back to me so that I will interview them on the day and time that they've been set for. To make this very simple thing, one to two people a week, not get screwed up, That form is part of our process. It streamlines everything. It gives me a snapshot in the window, and I look at it, and I say, okay, this person made a good pitch. Here's their website. Yeah, okay, they look legit, or no, they're hokey as shit. They're out. They're in. Over to Dorothy, and everything works because we have a process. You need a process of love, 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 love for every new customer you get in a business like this. You need to have, when that person comes in, there are certain things that once they do business with you, there are certain things that are going to happen forever. I would build, even if it's, you know, it's probably not that, you know, you're going to have that huge of a book of business. You don't need that, anything that sophisticated at first, but I would like categorize into people into kind of sub-regions within the region you operate and make sure that there's phone numbers for all of those regions. And one of the things I would do, once I've done business for somebody and they're happy with me, can I send you text messages if I happen to be in your service area and I'm, you know, could be available? Because inevitably you're going to get somebody that says, I want you to come out and do this thing. And you're going to go out and look at it and say it's going to cost like X dollars and it's going to be a three hour job. And you're going to be in that area, you know, next Thursday for three hours. It'd be a good thing if you just texted everybody in that area and said, hey guys, just know I'm going to be in, you know, your, your area handling a job in the morning. If there's any kind of small thing you've been needing done, I can probably save you a little bit of money because I'm already going to be in the area. You need to have maybe a monthly email that goes out that's really short. Something that when somebody opens it in one page, they can read it all without scrolling. Because people don't take a lot of time to read emails from their handyman. No, you don't have fancy freaking shit. You don't need graphics and crap. Just be like, you know, it's January, so these are things you should be worried about. This is a, something we're doing this month. Like three bullet points. And just touch them once a month. Right? Something like that. You need that process. And then all of a sudden, a lead from Home Advisor that converts to cleaning gutters turns into a lifelong customer. You can't be in a service business 
buying leads or getting leads through advertising if you're not converting a significant number of people that you do business once into people you do business with over and over and over and over again. And this is a place I think there's so much opportunity because, frankly speaking, as a customer of Handyman, most of them suck. Not a little bit, a lot. They're either good at what they do, but they don't show up. They're shitty at what they do, and they do show up. Or they're good, and they show up, and then they go away, and you can't find them again. That's been my experience. And when I've found good ones, I have thrown them every single bit of business I can. Now, if you actually cultivate your customers, you can have more customers like me and less one-off customers. And that's any business. Fishing guide, same shit. Don't care. Painting houses, don't care. Anything that's a service-oriented business, you need that process or you've got nothing. And even if you become really successful, you'll never be as successful as you could be. Okay, guys, let's uh, let's take another one. This one here on battery backup systems for, you know, short-term downtime is what I'm going to call it. Sean Mills. Hey, guys, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and I've got an expert panel question for you. Uh, so question, what type or size battery backup slash inverter system can I install to prevent our whole house from going quote-unquote dark in the 30 seconds between losing grid power and our automatic backup generator coming online? Details. When we built our house five years ago, we installed a 12KW Briggs & Stratton whole house backup generator. It runs off our 1,000-gallon buried propane tank. We are in the New York Catskills. And between scheduled maintenance, wind, snow, and ice, we lose power more often than we like. Mostly it's just a minor inconvenience, but last week we lost power and my wife lost over an hour of work on her computer. She hadn't noticed that her UPS battery had died. She plans on replacing the UPS, and I was thinking of how nice it would be to not have to sit in a dark garage or wait to reset the table saw until the power returns 30 seconds later. Our daily electrical use over the past year has ranged from a low of 30 kilowatt hours to a high of 77 kilowatt hours. Do you think I should install a larger system to cover more than a minute or two of power loss? Eventually, we want to install a solar system with battery bank and go completely off the grid. Thank you, Frank and the Catskills. Frank, uh, your best solution here is going to be to select a few high-value circuits, so maybe the lights in the rooms that you spend the most time in, so maybe garage, kitchen, office, living room, master bedroom, um, maybe some plugs from those same areas, uh, put them on a separate distribution panel, and run that panel from something small like a 3KW inverter that's fed by a lithium iron phosphate battery bank with a plug-in charger. Uh, so what you're doing there is during most of the year, um, you know, you could get a quality, high quality, like 48 volt, 25 amp charger that stays plugged in. And during the times when the power is on, it's keeping your battery bank topped off at 100%. In the event that your power goes out, the circuits in question never even blink. Uh, so we're not putting our refrigerator on there. We're not putting heaters on there. We're not putting central HVAC on there. Uh, we're not putting the dryer and the washing machine on there, but we're putting, you know, we're putting special or high value circuits like your wife's office your garage things like that um you know that like i say that when that happens um you can choose then to top the batteries off with the natural gas generator or rather the propane generator or you can wait for grid power to return you know all you gotta do is go down there and flip that charge controller off run off a battery for a while 
you know, if you get down to 50%, if you're using lithium iron phosphate batteries and you say, hey, you know, who knows how long this thing is going to last. Let's go ahead and get these batteries topped back up. You go flip your charger back on. Uh, so that's running, the charger is running off of whatever is powering the main distribution panel in the house. So whether it be the grid or the whole house generator, but then those special circuits, they're running off the battery bank. Um, and so that's why when the power goes out, those circuits don't do anything. So they just stay on. Um, the LifePo 4 batteries on the market today have built-in battery management systems. Uh, so you can actually manner or manner, <laughs> you can monitor the usage during your power outages and determine if perhaps you want to swap over more circuits or just run some additional power cords to other rooms from those circuits during power outages. Um, now that battery bank becomes the start of your future system and allows you to do what I'm suggesting many off-grid folks do, which is have multiple smaller systems, not just big one, or just not just one big one. So in this scenario, you could potentially have one inverter that runs these special circuits, and when you go solar, you get a bigger inverter that runs all the rest of them, and now you've got the option to be off-grid. Now you can put grid on if you want. You can run off of batteries. You can run off of solar. You, you can run off propane. You've got all of the options. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I would do. I would I would you know, obviously you're talking about you know these batteries are running about fifteen hundred bucks a piece. But in this application, that's what you're going to want. You could probably get away with one. I would say probably two uh, would be best with a little cabinet to put them in, maybe a cabinet that's big enough to allow for future expansion. Um, the charger that I'm talking about is about a $300 charger, high quality, uh, but this is exactly what it's built for. And, um, you know, you can probably get away with an inverter less than $500. The real, you know, so that's your component cost. You know, if you got an electrician buddy, uh, maybe he can come out for five or 600 bucks uh, worth of materials and, and put that, that extra um, distribution panel in for you. So that's how I would solve that problem. Hope that helps. Good luck to you. If you guys have any other questions, send them in the jack and I will get them answered. Thanks. So next up, I uh, talked quite a bit about a week, two weeks ago, I guess, maybe it was two weeks ago, about some issues with one fellow was having with grass-fed beef. And then Darby chimed in on it, sent us a segment. Keith heard both the, the my segment and, and then Darby follow-up and said, hey, I got some thoughts on cooking grass-fed beef, especially ground beef, and uh, put together a recipe for you guys for steakhouse butter burgers and, and sent us a segment on that. So that's what you can hear next. Hey, Jeff Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to talk a little bit today about grass-fed beef. Now, I've been, uh, boy, recommending and advocating for grass-fed beef uh, for a long, long time, since, I don't know, about 2004 is when I really started to push it. I mean, I've done television episodes about um, grass-fed farms and all kinds of stuff. And um, so I've, I've had a lot of access to these type of meats. And, you know, as our food system evolves and changes, um, I feel that we're going to have to eventually get away from the uh, feedlot beef, the, the confinement beef, which is really bad. And just, just so you all know, I've also um, lived on cattle farms, 
um, next to cattle farms. I know quite a few people that raise cattle. Um, I grew up with a family that had dairy cows, so I have been around a lot of animals in my day. Um, and one thing to note is just how the general industry works is cows are not, um, given grain when they're, when they're, you know, at their birthing place. So for instance, um, 200 acre farm in South Carolina, you know, maybe had 50, 80 head of cattle, new, new babies would be born and they would stay there until a certain time. And what do they eat? The grass, that's it. There's no supplementation of grain. It's just grass and water. And they're perfectly happy with that. And then they eventually will get sold. And then from there, they'll go generally to um, a place that, quote unquote, fattens them up for market. And it depends where you are in the country, but uh, these places are generally pretty horrible. And this is where it goes sideways for the cow. They start eating things that are not their normal diet in an effort to put marbling into them. Now, what's crazy is the most expensive beef on the market is prime beef. That's roughly 2%, 2 to 3% of the harvest would qualify as prime, meaning the animal has put on uh, sufficient weight and sufficient marbling. That's considered prime, but, you know, does it taste good? Sure. Is it tender? Absolutely sure. But it's not healthy meat because the cow was raised eating what cows are not supposed to eat. That is a lot of grain. So back to the subject, grass-fed beef. So a lot of people start out, they test the waters with ground beef, you know, and they get these usually one-pound containers. Um, and this is very different than store-bought meat. And now, I mean, in most supermarkets, you can find some grass-fed stuff. Um, you have to be careful to make sure it's actually legitimate. Um, but there's a number of, of purveyors out there and grass fed beef in general is going to be much, much, much leaner just by nature than a uh, feedlot beef. So it's going to be drier because when lean means less fat and fat is moisture and fat is flavor. So today's recipe, I call them harvest eating butter burgers. Um, I've asked Jack to include a link to my website where there's, um, just a simple short video that shows the exact process of doing this, but it's pretty general and you don't have to use the seasoning that's in the video, which is my harvest eating steakhouse blend. Is it great? Sure. But you can put kind of whatever seasoning you want. But the idea is, is to make these butter burgers for every, um, like two pounds of beef. We're going to add seasoning to it. And I mean, if you don't want to add seasoning, you don't have to, but the key ingredient is some good grass fed butter. So don't go buy, you know, uh, grass-fed steaks and then put, you know, crap-ass um, regular dairy that you buy, you know, great value butter from Walmart. You want to put something like Kerrygold or similar, some of the European butters, stuff that was raised on grass, New Zealand butter, totally different product. Anyway, you mix um, a ratio of that into it. So for two pounds, it's roughly, I think it's about uh, four tablespoons of butter and two tablespoons of seasoning. You mix this all together and then patty it up and then you can cook it the way you want. I do think it's best cooked on a flat top. Um, and I love grilled burgers just the same. Um, but there's something about, you know, cooking it when it's kind of in its fat like that, which makes it really nice. And what this does, when you mix this butter in, the meat is cold, the butter's warm, it gets incorporated all throughout there and throughout the meat. And then as you cook it, you know, sure, some of it comes out and bastes the meat, but overall, 
particularly if you don't cook it to death, the final product is much juicier than traditional grass-fed burgers. And I've seen a lot of people taste grass-fed burgers for the first time, and um, because it's so lean, it's very easy to overcook. Um, and there is nothing worse than, you know, medium well burgers. Um, even medium is pushing it. Um, so this is a great way to take a healthier cut of meat that is naturally lean and add some fat to it and have something really delicious. So it's quite easy, you know, simply season the butter with your favorite seasoning blend. And then you add cold meat to that. And you want it to be cold because if you add, you know, room temperature meat to this butter, it's just going to melt and not really get incorporated. So you want the meat to be refrigerator temperature and that way it will get incorporated all within the meat. So when it cooks, it's nice and moist and you can serve it however you like. I mean, I've, I had a burger actually last night and I'm not really eating carbs. Um, and I'm, and I'm actually feeling a lot better without them. And of course, those of you that listen have known I've made dietary changes like this in the past. But the point is you don't need the bun to have a great burger. You can put it on a plate and it's excellent. So do refer to the link in the show notes and go check out the video. Um, it's very simple and there's uh it'll you know give you the recipe as well. But that's it. Um I encourage everyone to go to harvesteating.com and check out the spices that I have in stock in the store and also to check out Food Storage Feast. It's a course that teaches you how to cook with all different types of food, not just freeze-dried, canned food, you know, beans, wheat, oat, corn. It's a, it's a pretty intense learning experience. So go and check that out. And I hope everybody has a great weekend. Thanks for supporting Jack at TSP and what I do over at Harvest Eating. Take care. Next up, we have uh, one of our newest council members, Amy Dingman talking to us about balancing using the internet for children to learn with, to do research with, with the fact that there's some things on the internet that maybe we'd prefer that they don't see. Hey there again, TSPers. This is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast and website, and I'm here to answer another question. This time is about internet usage and kids, and this question comes from Will. Will asks, there are many things on the internet I do not want my children to see. How do you suggest that I regulate their internet usage without hindering their ability to research topics and learn to use the internet? Oh, Will, the double-edged sword of the internet. The internet can be so helpful and so not. And things get really tricky when you start putting kids on the internet and wondering how to make it useful, but also safe for them. So Will, with your question, I don't know how old your kids are. I don't know if we're talking about a five-year-old or a 13-year-old. I can tell you a little bit about what we did, which is really interesting to think about because back when we started homeschooling in 2007, some of the options that people have now for you know how to really protect their kids on the internet, they didn't even exist back when we were starting this out. So we did things a little bit differently. When our kids were little, the computer that they had access to, and actually we only had one computer in our house. I mean, can you imagine that now? Because we have so many screens in our house now, but back when the kids were little, the computer they had access to was in a central place in the house. And if they were on it, we were around. They didn't have a computer in their room. They didn't have screens they were taking all over the house and kind of hiding out. 
there was one computer. It was in a central area in the house where everybody was. And so you kind of knew what everybody was doing on the Internet. When our kids were little, they also had time limits about how much they could use it. And there were certain sites they could visit and look around on. And that's where they could go. And if there was a new site they wanted to check out, I checked it out first to make sure I was okay with them buzzing around on that site. And that's how we dealt with it when they were little. Now, as our kids got older, we actually took away most of those limits because my goal has always been that my kids are going to need me less and less every year and they're going to conduct themselves in a manner where I need to step in less and less every year. So really in our house, there was this basic understanding that using the internet is a privilege and if you're somewhere you shouldn't be doing something you shouldn't be doing, you don't get to use it anymore. And if that means you now have to research for something by using books at the library or some other old school method, that's what happens. If it means you don't get to do your gaming or watch some really great YouTube tutorial about guitar techniques, that's a bummer. You don't get to use the internet. And you know, when we moved into you have your own phones and you have all of that, I paid for your phone. So I get to look at your phone whenever I want. I paid for your computer. You know, when they, they got laptops and they were kind of doing their own thing, I paid for that computer. I can look at it whenever I want. When it got to the point they were building their own computers and I couldn't say, I paid for your computer. I still pay for the internet. I still pay for that Wi-Fi connection. And so same, I'm, I'm going to be able to access your screen whenever I want because I'm paying for the ability for you to access the internet. So that was kind of an understanding we had in our house. Now I do need to put the caveat here that what you allow your kids to do and see and visit on the internet and what you find offensive or a waste of time may be completely different than what another family feels or what another parent thinks is okay. To be completely honest, as our kids got older, and this is just what we did, we were pretty loose with restrictions. And that's just because of our personal beliefs and how we run things here. And yeah, there were a couple conversations we had to have about internet usage, but we grew through them. We had those conversations and we grew through them. As far as younger kids, there are lots of apps out there. There are lots of features out there that will make your searching safer. I mean, we have Google Safe Search. We have, you know, you can put YouTube in safe mode. There are lots of different things you can do. You can also make it so they can only access certain sites on the device that they're on. There's a lot of information at an article. If you go to a website called commonsensemedia.org and you look for articles about parental controls there and, you know, guides for how to use the internet for kids, there's a lot of information on there and it, it's pretty up to date. But since you know your situation better, I'm going to let you research those options. Or maybe Jack, after I get done talking here, maybe he can add his two cents about um, how to deal with younger kids because I know his grandkids are younger than my kids are. Tech is always changing. There's always new things that you can use. There's always new options. And a lot of those things have changed since this topic was a concern with my kids because as most of you know, my kids are now older. They're 17 and 18. So this isn't really an issue that we're dealing with anymore. But I would tell you from my kids, they would also tell you to be careful of relying too much on those apps or those restrictive things that you can put on the computer. Because if your kid is really smart and they have enough time, they will figure out how to get around them. So the apps and the restrictions and the things that you can set up are really nice, especially for younger kids, but really a conversation about the internet and building some trust about using that internet and figuring out where those boundaries are that you don't want them to cross, that's a better groundwork to lay down for the future. If your kids are going to be on the internet, you need to be able to have a conversation about what's on the internet. You need to be able to have a talk about that. And for us, I didn't approach it as a conversation of 
you know, like shock and awe and there are horrible people and bad things on the internet. I approached it as more of a, you know, there's, there's really better ways for you to spend your time than getting involved in all that other junk that's on the internet. The internet is awesome because you can find a lot of stuff and the internet is freaky because you can find a lot of stuff. And as adults, we know that. And it really is a double edged sword. And the correct way for your family to put the internet to use is going to completely depend on your family. So I hope that helped you. I know I didn't give you any specific things about how to protect your kids, but I, I there's so many options out there. And I feel like that is something for you to research for how that's going to work for your family. What I really wanted more to point out in this conversation here is to have a conversation with your kids about the internet as it relates to the age that they are and the things that you want to put in place for your family. I think those conversations and building that trust is is really the undercurrent that needs to happen for the internet usage in your house to go well. So I hope that was helpful. If you have any thoughts or any further questions, you can find my contact information at my website, afarmishkindoflife.com. And TS Peers, send your questions about homeschooling, family life, parenting, any of those things to Jack for me to answer. I look forward to the next question. Yeah, I'm, I'm really in sync with most everything Amy said. I I, I kind of want to just point something out. You'll never keep up with your kid's ability to outsmart you and outfox you in their ability to see things that you don't want them to see, especially as they hit their teenage years and especially boys. There ain't a young teenage boy who had a chance to find, you know, his dad's girly magazine somewhere stashed that didn't get a hold of it. Uh, sometimes they get caught, sometimes they don't, but they all find it eventually. And if they don't find it, their friend does, and then they share it with each other. Like, this is a normal part of growing up. The kid, And the problem is that, you know, a penthouse in 1984 um, was really G-rated compared to some of the things that are online today. And then there's other problems beyond just that, that porn world. There's, you know, there's potential for uh, adults that want to prey on children, to be using chat rooms and things like that. But in the end, you are going to have to, like all things that we raise children towards, we're not really, if we're doing our jobs, raising children, we're raising adults. So teaching self-discipline and teaching them that there are things that they should just leave alone for now is a good idea. And, you know, as my grandson gets older, he's aware of the, he doesn't know how, but he's aware of the fact that I can see every single thing that he does online. And I think sometimes just being aware that you probably will get caught if you do what you shouldn't do is enough to keep them from doing it. And then you also know if you end up in that kind of situation and you catch them, you know they're doing it, where if they if they, if you're really watching every single thing all the time and using filtering and stuff like that, I'm not saying not to, I'm saying, but at some point you gotta take the, the, the swimming wing. You know, the swimming wings, like they have to come off, you can teach a kid to swim, right? Well, at some point, you have to take that stuff away because they will find another way if, if they feel like they're not permitted and, and that maybe there's something there, right? Where I think that the more you can do to raise adults and teach them discipline for themselves, the better off you'll be. And I think that's where Amy was coming from there. It's a weird problem because there isn't a simple all, you know, like, boom, solution. And she's right. There's things that some of y'all would just be horrified that your 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 you know your kids or your grandkids would read, and then maybe I would be like whatever, 
They hear that all the time anyway. And then there's things that we would both agree that, like, that. not only do I want my kids seeing that, that shouldn't even probably be online. No matter how much a free speech advocate you are, and maybe you don't want it to be taken away, but, like, the, the person that put that there, there is something wrong with them, you know? Um, but so your kids are going to become adults that are going to live with unlimited access to everything. So it needs to be a balance between protecting them when they're young and a transitional period to instilling discipline in them. So, you're again, we don't raise children. That's a, just a terrible phrase. We raise children. No, if we're doing our job right, we're, we're, we're helping children become adults. And we're effectively we're raising adults. All right, with that, I've got another one for you. This one on potted trees making it through the winter. Hey there, TSP listeners. Nick Ferguson here with another answer, and this one comes from Spencer. Hey, Jack, I'd love to submit this question for Jeff or Nick. I want to know if some potted trees I'm growing will survive the winter outside. If not, what are my options? Extra info, I'm in Zone 6, British Columbia. We probably get two inches of snow per year on average. I am growing black locust and catalpa trees from seed in 10-liter pots. That I plan on selling two years from now. I've heard plants can't survive outside in pots, and I don't want to plant them all. I could put them in a sunroom for the winter, but would rather not if there's a better option. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks for the question, Spencer. Honestly, I mean, I probably wouldn't be worried about it too much. Zone 6, British Columbia. If I had to guess, and I'm not sure. I mean, you could be in lots of different places, but you're probably somewhere around Kelowna. Uh, I don't know really how cold your area gets in the winter. A freeze is no big deal. You just don't want prolonged temps much lower than negative 12 Celsius or, for us in the U.S., 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And 10-liter pots are around 2.5 gallons-ish. Uh, but if you're worried about them and you don't have a ton of trees to cover, you could always, you know, you could put some square bales of hay or straw on their sides in a circle or square around the potted trees to prevent a bunch of weight piling up on the trunks. And you could cover the whole lot of trees with a tarp or a frost blanket to help insulate slightly. You know, what you might want to do is kind of have like four or five pots and then another square bale and then four or five pots and another square bale. You know, kind of dot them around so that if the frost blanket or the tarp or whatever you're putting on top um, has weight on it from snow, that it's not going to cave in and just smash all of your trees down and deform them. Um, another thing you could do all throughout that area would be like in between the pots, uh, cut a whole bunch of sticks or, or stobs or anything that you can stick in the ground to, uh, help push up on that insulative cover a little bit, kind of in between all the pots. Um, if you're going to have a long winter under freezing temps, you can always spray the whole area, you know, spray all the trees down with a sprinkler or a garden hose to coat everything in ice, you know, obviously um, with the tarp or whatever removed. As counterintuitive as this may seem, it'll actually help keep the trees from being damaged by too much cold temps. Uh, it'll also ensure they don't accidentally break dormancy too soon during a freak warm spell. A layer of ice might buy them a few days of cold temps to get past a few days of warmth that might have otherwise started waking them up. The main thing you want to avoid is pots that are frozen solid. You don't want the root system that's full of moisture, you know, because when they go dormant, all the, the sap goes down into the roots. You don't want that to freeze solid. It's full of moisture. If it freezes, it could split open, and then that could cause enough damage to kill a tree. 
weren't me, and I was iffy on the whole thing. Maybe you bring enough trees indoors or under shelter in a garage or something like that, so that you have enough trees to take cuttings from the next growing season. If the worst happens and all the outdoor ones die, at least you have propagation material still. But if this is something that you plan on doing long term or at a larger scale, man, you're just gonna have to brave a winter sooner or later. And heck, if you want really good advice, find a landscaper and ask if there are any commercial or small-scale producers in your area. Shop around, see if you can find one. If you can, go talk to a nurseryman and find out what they do in your area. Hope that helps out. I'm Nick from HomegrownLiberty.com and RarePlantStore.com. If you're wanting to get in on the upcoming consulting tours I'm doing all over the USA, shoot me an email. Honestly, I'm getting requests from all over the USA, so chances are I'll be in your neck of the woods at some time this year. So if you want a professional eye on your property to help you know where to do what, and most importantly, how to avoid costly mistakes, send me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com with the word consulting in the subject line. Man, nothing makes me happier than stepping foot on a client's property as they're getting started or... Man, they haven't even broken ground on a project, and I can get them lined out and redirect things that they would have done otherwise that would have cost them tens of thousands of dollars. I love seeing that relief on someone's face, knowing, oh my gosh, I just, I just saved myself twenty, thirty thousand dollars of mistakes. That makes my day. So, that's all I got for you today. So until next time, do good things. Okay, just a little bit of a thought on the whole tarp thing. If you're in a cold climate and you put a tarp over something, you create a shelter. And if you're in a place where you have lots of trees and plants, you're probably in a place where you also have lots of mice. And then the mice are like, "Ooh, look, the government built us a housing project, right?" And then they move in, and then they get under there. And it's much warmer and drier and safer under there than it is everywhere else. Problem is, you know, the government built them a housing project, but they didn't provide them with food stamps. There's not a lot to eat under there. But you know what tastes really good? Tree roots to a mouse. And I have heard from people, including、uh, Stephen Sobakayak, who's the guy that did the Miracle Orchard, a permaculture orchard, something like that. I've had him on the show before. He's a good friend.、Uh, he's up in、uh, he's up in Canada, and he lost thousands of trees one winter just like this. So you know, maybe the they're coated with ice. There ain't gonna be a lot of mouse under mice under the ice. Not not living ones would be one way. And the other side of this is. My opinion is that black locust, in particular, is probably not even going to have a hard time getting through this anyway. I, I just don't think, even potted, I don't think you're going to have too much trouble getting through this. And I would also say that Nick and I both would probably need more information to fully advise you. How big are these trees? You know, how big are the trees themselves? And when you say you plan on selling them, are you going to ship them? Because I wouldn't be potting trees if I was going to ship them. If you're going to sell them locally, it makes tons of sense. People love them that way. So, just kind of think about how you'll deal with mice. You can do a. a I'm not going to get into because the whole rodent control 
this is a different world, but just be aware that's a potential loss uh, contributor there. And again, I've heard from several people who have who have overwintered trees in different ways, but created this kind of like mar mouse house and ended up with all the roots eaten off the trees. Or a lot of times, even if they don't get into the ground and eat the roots, they'll eat the bark off the trunk. And they're not really interested in the bark. They're interested in that nice little living tissue that's between the bark and the core of the tree. We call that the cambium. And if you if you girdle a tree's cambium, it dies because it's like you've cut off all its blood flow to its above, and it's just not going to make it. All right, with that, let's jump into real quick. I got a anchor segment for you. I'm not going to be real long on it today, but Harold S. Ganine, who was a British businessman, said a very long time ago, in the business world, everyone is paid in two coins, cash and experience. Take the experience first. The cash will come later. My whole life, without being able to articulate it that way while I was doing it, came from this. And... One of my great influences on the way I think about business is from a guy that I have like a twisted respect for, and that's Robert Kiyosaki, who's the author of the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book, and then a whole series of things that came after it. And his my problem with Rich Dad, Poor Dad is it's written as though it's true, and it isn't. It's an allegory. I'm sure there's some truth and some childhood experiences in it, but there was no Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and his poor dad... Makes about made about it was before he was retired retired on about three hundred thousand dollars a year a very high ranking bureaucrat in, in in Hawaii school system he never had a poor dad and he wanted a poor kid right so I have to give that disclaimer when I say this but there's a ton you can learn from those books I, I think I just would have preferred the the honesty uh, it being there up front because when somebody's dishonest about that what else are they dishonest about I guess. However, one of the things he says in Rich Dad, Poor Dad is never take a job for money, take a job for experience. And never is a word I have a hard time with, but I, I, I got that point. And when I was kind of coming up in the world, I would take a job. I would learn everything I can. And there's only two things. That, see, this is the thing. It's not that, that you only worry about the experience. It's you worry about both the money and the experience. right? You get as much money as you can and as much experience as you can. And the point where I would leave a job was when I would get to a point where I felt like I can't learn anymore and I can't make any more anytime soon. If I reached that point, the only way I would have stayed in a job at that point is if I absolutely positively loved it. There was one time in my life I had one of those, and it was destroyed. It was destroyed by one company buying another company. And I don't know if I would have stayed there forever, but I probably would have stayed there for a long time breaking my own rule. So it was probably a good thing that I got, you know, kind of, I was going to say get kicked out. They wanted me to stay, but I didn't want to stay, I guess, is the way it works out. But the job wasn't what it was anymore. And so you either have to love what you're doing, or you have to be learning, or you have to be growing, at least economically. And if you don't have one of those three things, I think it's time to move on. That doesn't mean quit your job. That means find another job and quit your job. Or maybe it's time to branch out and run a business. As many of you know, I've never been to college. And I've learned from experience. But I didn't only learn from experience. I got the experience while I was learning from people that knew what the hell they were doing. 
and from a tremendous amount of self-education at the same time. And I think that this is something that is highly lacking in the world today as a whole, but is really lacking with young people reaching, you know, not just their starting point, but what should be where you're hitting your stride with your career. Like to me, this idea that people should be, you know, really advanced in their careers by in their like their forties, that's way too late. That's way too late. Like, what were you doing for the last 25 years if you're 44 and you're just now hitting kind of a, a top position? Hell, I'm 49 and I'm freaking half retired. I mean, I know I do this every day, but I love doing it. It's not like work, right? Um, when we, what we have now is we have all these kids that go to college and they, they've been, it's not their fault. So whenever I talk about young people, I'm not picking on them. They've been conditioned and it's multiple, multiple generations that have been conditioned upon condition now that go to school, get good grades, get degree equals get good job. So when they come out of college and their first job is making, you know, about the same money that somebody slinging coffee down at Starbucks can make. Their patience is, is, is non-existent. And they want to go from graduation to a job that pays well, is easy for them to do, and gives them meaning and purpose in their life beyond the basic meaning and purpose that any kind of, you know, any kind of doing something every day gives you. They want to have like some huge, momentous purpose for the world. And, and, and what they have been misled so far away from is that when you come out of college you are pretty much useless to an employer at that point they're buy when they hire you they're already paying you more than you're worth I'm sorry but they are they're hiring you based on your potential they, they've seen what you've done in school and they think with this base knowledge and what we can teach them they will be worth what we're going to start paying them in a few months now it is true the other side of it. They will always pay you as little as they possibly can. The, the goal of employers is, I want to pay this person enough that they won't leave, but not so much that I'm paying them more than I have to. Right? And unfortunately, most employees, their goal is, I want to get as much as I can, and I only want to work as much as I have to to keep from getting fired. And, and this is what happens when we do not follow Mr. Ganeen's advice. If I am working both for money and experience, I'm working on everything I can, as often as I can, as hard as I can, because I want the experience, and I want what the experience gives me, and I, I even want to fail while I'm failing with your money, because now I learned don't do that. Especially if you told me to do that, and I have nothing to, like I did it, it didn't work, you told me to, I can't be wrong, but here's my idea how to fix it, my initiative to make it work. And when you get to the point where you're like, I'm not going to learn anything in the next six months. And I'm not going to get a raise in the next year. And a dollar an hour raise is not the kind of raise I'm talking about. Like if you're getting a dollar, 75 cent hour raises every year, and that's all you have to look forward to. There's no major leap in responsibility, in things that you're going to touch and learn and, and, and deal with. And you're not going to get money, and you're not going to get that, and you're not going to advance. Go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. Look out for number one. Because you will always move up faster by moving over than by waiting in a place when you're not in motion.
if you're not in motion, if there's not a clear advancement path, and one of the first time, you know, one of the first indicators to me that, you know, like, if I back when I had jobs, like, oh, I need to look for a new job. There's an opening in a leadership position at that company, and the company I'm working for goes outside the company to hire someone into that leadership position. I'm done. I'm sorry. I'm out. Now, I'm not saying they should have hired me. They should have promoted me. If I look, you know, across the aisle and, and Bill just got promoted into that position, and that creates kind of this whole, like, everybody moving up a little bit in that chain that Bill was in, well, I, okay, then I need to work harder so I get the next one. But if, like, everybody that works here that's been busting their ass No one was qualified to take Tom's position when he quit or retired or when they created a new... Like, we need somebody to do this. You don't have anybody in the whole company that you've been grooming to move up. I'm, and I don't mean I'm walking out the door angry. I mean, my resume sitting in the street, I'm calling my contacts. And I'm always looking in that next job. What will they let me touch? What will they let me do that I can't do where I am, but I've done enough things like it that I can convince them that I can walk in and do it immediately. That's how I always was, and that's how I went. From honest to God, guys, at 21 years of age, I worked in a warehouse for a company called Home Interiors and Gifts, packing boxes and working like just, just working like a freaking slave, man. It was a miserable job. And in four years... I went from that making $5.90 an hour to making over $100,000 a year. And I damn sure didn't stay in one place to do it. I went through three jobs in four years to get there. And when I got there, I got there by taking a job making $24,000 a year. However, there was a sales incentive attached to it. And then, you know, 10 years later, I find myself taking a job making $45,000 a year coming out of a job making multiple six figures to make a professional shift from sales to marketing. And it took me one and a half years to be back over six figures. And I made another move. And the company that gave me the shot in marketing said, well, we took a shot on you and now you're leaving? And my response was, well, yes. Because I've proven I can do everything here as good as I said and better. I'm better than anybody else you have, and you're not promoting me, and you're not going to promote me anytime soon. And can you match the, the offer that I'm being given that's like four times what you're paying me? You can't. Okay, so then it, you're, you're telling me if you were me, you wouldn't leave? And I was a little nicer about it, but when I put it that way, they're like, well, yeah, yeah, I, okay. And that's that is the real world. You have to put your talent out to bid. But if you're not always building your talent, if you're taking jobs because you need a job and that's who will hire you and they're going to pay you and you need money, God bless you for it. Not being lazy. Try to figure out how to make something out of it. If you have options, I'll put it to you just as blunt as I can. If right now I was still in the workforce and it was time for me to move on and I had one job that would pay me a salary, And it would be everything in it I can do. I'm not going to stretch it all. It's not going to be hard. They're going to pay me really well because I'm really good at it. And another job is going to pay me 10% less. But I'm going to have to work harder. But I'm going to learn more new things. I'm going to add to my skill set. 
I'm taking the job that pays less. Because if I'm not learning and I'm not making myself more valuable, I'm rotting. And every single young person in like high school transition to college coming out that any if they're anywhere in that space they need to understand this because this is this has always been true when people rode around on horses because there were no cars this was true but it has become more true as technology has advanced is the need for human labor has it has declined due to automation, due to mechanization, etc. This has become more true. And the, the kids that are 10, 15 years old right now, like I said, you should be hitting your stride like early 30s. That's when you should really be hitting your stride, really be moving up to kind of like that, that upper level in your life where you can pay your bills and you're not worried about it. Like if you're not there by your mid-30s, you're missing it. I don't mean you're, you suck or anything. It just means you're not, you're running out of time to hit that stride. You're only that young person that they'll take a gamble on for so long. There's a point where, like, you're 42 and you've never risen above a certain level. The expectation is you're not gonna. And you have to fight really hard to change that preconception. Well, I'm telling you that that age is dropping and the number of people that get through the gauntlet as far as the percentage is going down. And it will be the people who take this guy's advice and get every bit out of every experience in addition to whatever money they can get. They're going to be the ones that make it through the gauntlet. And the ones that don't, no matter what your job is, you know, if it paid enough, you might as well be putting hot dogs on a bun and giving them to people across the countertop. Because even if you're doing something that sounds a hell of a lot better you'll be that replaceable. It will be the people that can do just about anything that's put in front of them, even if they have to screw it up once or twice. But you're all, you always know that person's going to get it done as there's less and less need for people to, like, pack a box, load a truck, drive a truck. That's going to become more and more true. All right, with that, we've wrapped things up uh, with another episode. I want to remind you, you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. My item of the day is the same one it was yesterday. It's the STX 3000 Turbo Force Meat Grinder. I'm not going to go on and on about it because I talked about it yesterday. But it, it was you know it was one of those things that went on sale. It ain't been on sale for two years. And it, I figured it would be on sale for one day. It was on sale this morning when I, when I got up. And I'm like, I'm running it again. Uh, again, unless you're going to be grinding meat every week or something like that and significant amounts of it. You know, like I'm talking... 20, 30 pounds a week, or you're going to grind a couple hundred pounds a month every other month, where you want to step up to something like the Cabela's Carnivore at like four to $600, unless you're doing that, don't buy anything but this. I went through hell to find the best meat grinder I could under 200 bucks. This one's on sale at 130 right now. And I, I'm going to tell you that there's other meat grinders out there that are 250 to 300 bucks, and this thing is either just as good for half the money or it embarrasses them. So if you need one, get it and get it while it's on sale because when it goes off sale, I don't see it going on sale again. And, and right now, when something's on sale, during the everything shortage, I don't know how it happened, but if you need it, it'd be a good time to get it. All right, with that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Um, this is this song's been around forever. 
And when I say forever, I mean forever. This is uh, Saturday in the Park, and uh, it's from it was originally released in 1972. And of course, you know we're heading in the Fourth of July weekend here, and Fourth uh, of July plays part in this song. The band that the, this song is from is Chicago, and uh, lead vocalist, of course, Peter Cetera. I don't know who the hell I thought sang this song, but I, I, I guarantee you, I would have never got it right in like a trivia show or something like that. I had, I had no idea this song, and I, I like a lot of music that's come from Chicago. I just, I don't know. It's one of those songs you hear it on the radio or you hear it on Pandora or something. I don't even look at it. It's like, oh yeah, it's that song. It's all right. I uh, had no idea this was a Chicago song. Um, but we're playing it in recognition of the 4th of July holiday. And it's a cool song, really. If you listen to it, there's a lot in it uh, about just kind of appreciating things. And uh, you know, it was written after you know a trip through. I think it was Central Park, actually, um, around the Fourth of July. And there's some cool stuff in it if you actually listen to the words, like statues of bronze and what that teaches us, and basically how history tells us that there's hope for the future. Like, there's stuff like that in this, even though it's kind of just a feel-good song. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.